0: Good morning. Would you please turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah, chapter 38. Jeremiah, chapter 38. My wife, Darina, and I are elated to be with you today. Uh, The reception that we received uh, has so encouraged our hearts. We got a chance to spend time with some of your leaders yesterday over a meal and hearing what the Lord is doing in this wonderful church and in this blessed community. And we're honored to be a part of what the Spirit of the Lord is doing, not only in your body, but also in these last days. I don't know about you, but uh, my salvation is nearer now than when I first believed. We're just one day closer to the return of our blessed God and King, Jesus Christ. And that encourages my soul. Is anybody else encouraged by the fact that our King is coming? His name is Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Jeremiah chapter 38, beginning at verse 1, and I'm reading from the New King James Version, and there are some tough words in this passage. Some names that are not easy to pronounce, so uh, bear with a brother as I work through this. <laughs> now, Shephatiah, the son of Matan, Gedaliah, the son of Pashur, Jukal, the son of Shelemiah, And Pashur, the son of Malchiah, heard the words that Jeremiah had spoken to all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, he who remains in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes over to the Chaldeans shall live. His life shall be as a prize to him, and he shall live. Thus says the Lord. This city shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which shall take it. Therefore, the princes said to the king, please let this man be put to death. For thus he weakens the hands of the men of war who remain in this city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man does not seek the welfare of this people, but their harm. Then Zedekiah the king said, look, he is in your hand, for the king can do nothing against you. So they took Jeremiah and cast him into the dungeon of Malchiah the king's son, which was in the court of the prison. And they let Jeremiah down with ropes. And in the dungeon there was no water but mire. So Jeremiah sank in the mire. Now, Abed-Melech the Ethiopian, one of the eunuchs, who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah in the dungeon. When the king was sitting at the gate of Benjamin, Abed-Melech went out of the king's house and spoke to the king, saying, My lord the king, these men have done evil in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they have cast into the dungeon, and he is likely to die from hunger in the place where he is. For there is no bread or no more bread in the city. Then the king commanded Abed-Melech the Ethiopian saying, Take from here 30 men with you and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the dungeon before he dies. Verse 11. So Abed-Melech took the men with him and went into the house of the king under the treasury and took from there old clothes and old rags and let them down by ropes into the dungeon to Jeremiah. Then Abed-Melech the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, please put these old clothes and rags under your armpits, under the ropes. And Jeremiah did so. So they pulled Jeremiah up with ropes and lifted him out of the dungeon and Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. So permit me this morning to speak a word entitled, Do the Right Thing. Do the right thing. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this wonderful invitation from Pastor Jeff and the people of Wood's Edge to come and deposit a spiritual gift amongst them. And I pray that the word that you have given me to speak would be a word that will encourage them, that will strengthen them, even instruct them. But Lord, we also know that your word can be a two-edged sword and sometimes you cut us in order to heal us. Lord, I thank you for how you've been challenging me with many of the things in my heart that I didn't even know were there. But Lord, you bring them up not to condemn me, but you bring them up because you love me and you want to heal me and cleanse me, to make me more like Christ. So for my friends, my brothers and sisters in your body who are just meeting me this morning, Lord, I pray that The words of my heart and the meditations of the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would not only be pleasing to you, but also be pleasing to the people of God. Bless us today to be a blessing. Thank you for this time and for this hour. May your church rise up and may your enemies be scattered. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. 1989, the number. Another summer. Sound of the funky drummer. Music hitting your heart because I know you got soul. Brothers and sisters. Those are the immortal words from the great prophet Chuck D. of Public Enemy. Uh (laughs) And he said those words in the song Fight the Power that was used as part of the soundtrack for a movie that came out in 1989. That was written, produced, and directed by Spike Lee. Do the right thing." And this movie has been considered one of the top 25 movies ever made in American culture. And this movie is very spicy and dicey. It's a movie that challenges all of our preconceptions, and it challenges our implicit biases, our prejudices and even our racist tendencies, all of us. And so in this movie, it takes place in Brooklyn. And in uh, Brooklyn, there are several ethnicities of people who are living together. And he tells the story how on the hottest day of the summer, that tensions boiled over between Italian Americans and black Americans and white Americans and Latino Americans, tensions boiled over. So much so that a white police officer ended up killing an unarmed black man, and a riot ensued. And this riot ended, and the movie ended, and there were no clear answers given at the end of this movie because apparently the director, writer, and producer, Mr. Spike Lee, wanted us to ask ourselves if we were in a similar situation. Could we be trusted to do the right thing? Could we be trusted to do the right thing concerning our brothers and sisters of different ethnicities? And I believe that that question is still a very pertinent question today when we look at how divided these United States of America happen to be. And when it comes to doing the right thing, it takes courage, it takes conviction. And sometimes you have to be willing to leave the crowd to do so. And Jeremiah, the prophet of God, was a man who understood what doing the right thing was all about. You see, it cost him to say the right thing, and it also cost him to do the right thing. But Jeremiah was a prophet of God and not a puppet of man. You see, when a preacher is a puppet of man, then when the people pull the strings, then The preacher says what the people want to hear. And they tried to do that with Jeremiah, but Jeremiah was no puppet. Jeremiah was a prophet, and God's word was like a fire shut up in his bones. There were times he didn't want to accept his assignment. He didn't like his assignment because he wasn't very popular in town. Because he would preach and say to the people of God, the apple of God's eye, Israel. He would say to them, Because you have wandered away from the Lord, because you have turned to worshiping idols and not the true and living God, God is raising up his servant, Nebuchadnezzar, and the Babylonians, and they're going to come and imprison you for 70 years. And so the message was since you aren't turning to God, God is going to have to turn you over. Because there's nothing like a hard time or a literal prison cell to soften one's heart and to look up to the only wise God. But sometimes when we are, quote unquote, free, we don't act too wisely. And so the people of God were running amok, but God was ordering um, a nation to come and lock them up, if you will, so that their attention could turn back to God. Now, you would think that that was a hard enough message to swallow because if God would discipline his own people, the Jews, what makes us think in America that he won't discipline us here? What makes us think that God may not hand us over so that the persecution, the fire may not only purge us as Americans and the American church above all, but to make us look up to God so that we may look like God in this day and age? so that we're more Christian than we are cultural. So God can use persecution to do that. But not only did they get upset with Jeremiah for that word, but Jeremiah also said that when the enemy comes, and as they surround the city, do not resist them, do not fight them. Give in to them and it will go well with you. You will live if you surrender, but if you resist, you will die. And so four of the king's officials felt that Jeremiah's words were counterproductive to the morale of the nation. And so they said, he must be silenced. He's weakening the men of war. He's weakening the hands of the people with that message that we will not only be taken captive, but we should surrender to our captors. We've got to silence him. So they went to the king, and one of those four men that I read about happened to be the king's grandson. So the king gave them permission to put Jeremiah not only in a dungeon, but also in a muddy, muddy grave, leaving him there to die a slow and cruel death. So as Jeremiah sank in the mud, he began to experience suffocation. And as Jeremiah, the prophet of God, began to sink in the mud that his own people put him in, He was hungry, so he began to experience starvation. He was thirsty, and he began to experience dehydration. And with all of this that was going on, and he was slowly dying, he had enough wherewithal to look up to heaven and ask God to help him to get out of that pit that his brothers had put him in. And he asked God, God, send somebody Raise up somebody to do the right thing and get me out of this place because I shouldn't have to die like this for speaking your word. Well, the Lord heard the man of God's prayers and he raised up someone who would in fact do the right thing, someone who would in fact get Jeremiah out of that muddy cistern. And that person that we just read about is or was Ibed-Melech. And the Bible lets us know that Abed-Melech was an African man. He was an Ethiopian. He was a king's official. He worked in his court. He was a eunuch. So there's a possibility that he had charge over the king's wives or his harem because the king wouldn't want to have a man around his women. I'll stop and leave it alone right there. And so Abed-Melech was raised up by God. And this encourages my soul because if God can use a man with physical limitations, a man with wounds and scars, some men, according to Jesus in Matthew 19, are born as eunuchs. Some make themselves eunuchs and some are made eunuchs by others. Whatever the case, this man had limitations on him, yet God still used him to do a great thing to save a life that day. And as we look around, and as I look around this wonderful sanctuary full of God's people, I see beautiful people who are also limited. I see people who have scars and wounds, and you're broken, and I'm broken. But that's the beauty of grace, that God uses us in spite of ourselves, and that this treasure is in earthen vessels, broken, cracked pots, But it's the glory of God that's greater than our deficiencies. So that when he uses us to do a great thing, he gets the glory for what is done. So cheer up. God can use you in your brokenness. God can use you in spite of your past. Because the best ability has always been availability. So Abed Melech, the Ethiopian, made himself available to God. And God used him to rescue the prophet of God. But before I go any further, I need to ask this question. What in the world would motivate a castrated African to risk his life to rescue a circumcised Hebrew? I mean, what would make a castrated African risk his life to rescue a circumcised Hebrew? I'm here to let you know it had to have been love. And it also had to have been a sense or a calling towards justice. He had a love for God that manifested in his love for man, whether that man was a fellow Ethiopian or that man was a Hebrew. This love, this relationship that he had with God manifested because the next chapter says that abed Melech did have a relationship with God. But also there was this sense of justice because to see this innocent man, this man of God, treated this way by the system. To see this man treated this way by powers greater than the prophet, earthly speaking. Ibet Melek said, I must do something about this or I won't be able to sleep at night. And so Micah chapter 6, verse 8, the prophet comes along and he says that God has shown us what he requires. And that is to do justice, to love mercy. Oh, I love receiving mercy, but I'm not always quick to want to give mercy. But that's why I must also walk humbly with God, Micah 6.8. Because as I walk humbly with God, I can only do that with mercy. And I want to be a conduit of mercy that his mercy and his love and his justice flows to me as well as through me ibed Melik was such a man. Well, I see a few things about him in the text as he did the right thing that I'd like to share with you this morning at Wood's Edge. The first thing is we should all be encouraged like Ibed-Melech to do the right thing and get involved. Do the right thing and get involved. ibed Melik took a risk that day because going into a king's presence to ask him to overturn a word that he just gave could cost you your very life. Back in the days of antiquity, people understood that the king's word was law, and there was no one higher than the king. And so the king could have you executed on sight just because. So when Nehemiah was in the presence of the king, and his face was saddened because of His people's home, his homeland, the walls had been burned down. The temple was destroyed. And while he's in the presence of Xerxes, his countenance is down. And he is the guy that tests the food. He's the taste tester. He's the cup bearer. You don't want that brother with a sad face in your countenance because you're going to wonder, has he just been poisoned? And I'm not going to eat or drink whatever they're trying to bring me today for lunch in the daily special. And so therefore, Nehemiah was like, "Uh oh, my face is down in the presence of the king. Oh, Lord. And he began to pray to the king of all kings because he understood that you could be killed in the presence of the king just for not looking right. And then there was Esther, as you recall. She was married to the king, and her uncle Mordecai said, baby, we need some help out here because Haman has set a decree out so whereby all of the Jews will be killed and we can't defend ourselves. Will you go before the king, your husband, and ask that he would change the decree or give us grace to fight for ourselves? And Esther said, now, Uncle Morty, I just don't know if I can do that because this is not my time to go before the king. And Mordecai said, well, listen here, God is going to bring deliverance for the Jews one way or another, but perhaps you are in the kingdom for such a time as this. And so she said, okay, okay, I'll go before the king, my husband, and ask for petition for the Hebrews. But I'm not going until y'all fast first, so y'all get to fasting. That's how serious it was. And so when he goes to the king, he takes a risk. And how many of us know that in order to be a leader, you have to be willing to take a risk. In order to see change, we have to be intentional. He didn't sit at home. He got up and did something, and he used his influence and access to help others. He knew the king of Judah. He knew Zedekiah. He had access to him, and he used that power to help someone who didn't have as much power. He used his access to help someone who didn't have as much access at the time. He used his favor with the king to help someone who had fallen out of favor with the king. And that's an encouragement to all of us who have power, who have access, who have privilege. We've been blessed to be a blessing. We've been blessed to be intentional to lift up those who are downtrodden. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs that the righteous care about justice, especially for the poor. We don't want to be those kind of people who have a blind eye and a deaf ear to the poor, to the hurting, to those who need a hand up. And so he used his privilege and his access to help someone of another ethnicity, who happened to find himself in a mud hole. He did the right thing and he got involved. He did not remain silent, but he spoke up. Because he could have sat in his bedroom. He's probably a part of the king's palace and he heard about what happened or he watched it on Fox or CNN and he knew that something had happened to Jeremiah and that Jeremiah was in the muddy cistern. And he could have just turned the station or said a prayer for him. But instead, love is an action word. He got up and he went to the king and he opened up his mouth, once again taking a risk, endangering his own life to help someone else. He spoke up because he didn't want it to be mistaken that being quiet might mean that he is in consent with the decision to put Jeremiah in the well. So he says, no, I don't want my silence to mean consent. I am going to speak up even if that means I'm going to be called a Hebrew lover. I'm going to speak up even if that means I'm going to be called a prophet lover. I'm going to speak up even if that means they're going to put me down because, again, the essence of the gospel is empowerment and speaking up for those who can't speak for themselves. For Consider the grace of our Lord, 2 Corinthians 8:9, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. Jesus surrendered his power the full expression of his deity, limited it himself voluntarily, donned the robes of humanity so that he could come down and die and lift us up and bring us back to God. So if I'm going to be like Jesus, there needs to be some places in my life where I use my power to help the powerless, and I'm even willing to surrender my power to help those who don't have it. Oh, I love Abed Millic. He's my man. He didn't keep his mouth shut. Martin Luther King said, In the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. Secondly, Abed Melek did the right thing, and we should do the right thing and cross the color barrier. Cross the color barrier. Did you see color in the pages of the Bible just now? I did. I saw that God said Abed-Melech was an Ethiopian, which means he was an African, which meant that he had darker skin. I saw that in the Bible. And if I had time, we would go back to chapter 13 when God says, can an Ethiopian change his skin? Implying that an Ethiopian skin was different from a Hebrew skin, that an Ethiopian an African skin was dark. And that's nothing to be ashamed of. That's nothing to be ashamed about, whether you have the dark skin or you're with someone who does have the dark skin. We don't need to say, uh, if we're white and we have black friends or brown friends, and we say, you know what, I don't see color. You don't need to say that. Matter of fact, I came all the way from Nashville, Tennessee, to encourage you to let that kind of language go. We know you mean well when you say, I don't see color, and I raise my kids not to see color. We know you mean well when you say that, but sometimes it can also be received by us that my personhood and being made in the image of God, and he made me this way, and I'm thankful to have coarse hair and a wider nose and fuller lips. I'm thankful to have this dark skin. You can't acknowledge my color? What am I, clear or something? It's okay to say that I have black friends and the the mayor is black or, or, or this, my boss is Asian or Latino. It's okay because if you get in a car accident today leaving here and God forbid, and somebody hits you and runs off, and the police show up and they say, "Okay, give me a make on the car." Well, it was a red, uh, um, Mitsubishi with white stripes on it. Matter of fact, they left some marks here on my car. See the red paint that peeled up? Okay, be on the lookout for a red Mitsubishi. Now, what did the driver look like? Well, you know, I don't see color. It was a clear person behind the wheel. <laughs> we know what you mean. You see, my color is just a description. It's not a definition. We don't need to be afraid to say, I see color and I see beauty. And for America to break this color barrier that we have in 2016, blacks and whites will have to work together again. Again. we got to do it again. We work together as abolitionists. Sojourner Truth and William Lloyd Garrison, A black woman and a white man worked together to bring this message to the masses. Blacks and whites worked together during the Underground Railroad, and many paid great prices to help their brother man. And I'm so thankful black people would not be where we are today without God moving upon and impressing upon the hearts of white people who used their power to help the powerless back in the 1700s and the 1800s. Lord, do it again. Black people and white people worked together during emancipation. Whether they were on the macro level or the micro level, they worked together, people like Frederick Douglass and President Abraham Lincoln, who wasn't even thinking about putting slaves into the Union Army. But because his friend, Fred, encouraged him, he followed through. But also, blacks and whites worked together during the days of Jim Crow, where Martin Luther King and President John F. Kennedy decided to come together. And even during that time, blacks who had a loyal allegiance to the Republican Party because Abraham, quote unquote, Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves, they shifted that loyalty to the Democratic Party because they saw how President Kennedy and Martin Luther King worked together. What am I saying? It's time for us to work together again. And we've got to break the color barrier. I'm blessed to lead a multiracial church in the South Um, There was a time where I had more white members than black members, and now it's about 50-50 in the South. And I stand on the shoulders of men and women who've gone before, black and white, who've paved the way. And I'm thankful, but when I look around, I don't see a lot of churches that look like ours. 93% of all churches in America are homogeneous. Some of it is because of the location. Man, if you're out in Iowa or Idaho, you ain't going to have too much diversity out there. We understand that. But if you live in a city with diversity and you're serious about the commission to go into Jerusalem and compel them to come into the house of the Lord, there should be more diversity in our local church houses. Man, we've got to get busy. And I'm thankful because to initiate love is to be like God. To demonstrate love is to be like Jesus. But then thirdly and finally, Abed-Melech did the right thing and he lifted up his neighbor so if I'm going to be like this African, let me lift up my neighbors around me. Jeremiah 38, 13 says that he sent the ropes down and he lifted him out. A neighbor is someone who lifts you up in times of trouble regardless of your class or your ethnicity. And that's why this man, Abed Melek, is a foreshadowing of the Good Samaritan that Jesus lifted up in the parable in Luke chapter 10. The Good Samaritan was the neighbor to presumably the Jewish man who had fallen on tough times, and he was half dead left in the road. His own people walked by on the other side of the street, but this Samaritan, who was considered a dog racially, took the time and demonstrated love and initiated love and cared for this man who was of another ethnicity than he was. And Jesus said, Well, who was the man's neighbor? It was the one who had mercy on the man who was hurt. And so we're called to love God and love our neighbor, especially our neighbors who are in tough places and who are hurting and need a hand up. And I'm just here to say as I close, America is hurting. The world is hurting. These are groaning pains and birth pains before the coming of the Lord. And there's bloodshed everywhere. And it's making some hearts soft and other hearts hard. Some people are turning to God. Some people are turning away from God. And when we think about the challenges that are in this nation, especially what we see on TV as of late, where there's been bloodshed of black men and police officers, we are hurting as a people. Now, here's what frightens me, though. There seemed to be more compassion in America in 1963 when America would see children hosed down in Birmingham or attack dogs, German shepherds biting on black people and black children, it seemed to ruffle the consciences of white America to the point where they showed up and said, Dr. King we will stand with you because we didn't see it before. But now through these pictures that are in Life Magazine that we're seeing in time, we see that it's bad. And we haven't been necessarily listening to the cries of our brothers and sisters of color. That was in 1963, and it helped invoke a time where Dr. King could share a dream about all of us sitting together at the table of brotherhood. And there could be 250,000 people on the mall in Washington of various races coming together not only for community, but also for jobs and housing. There was a movement then, but I'm afraid that now when we see people murdered and shot down on television, We have selective outrage. We're more upset over a gorilla that gets shot than a black man who bleeds out on television. Or we'll hear from you when the police get killed, and we should cry out. That's wrong. But my white brothers and sisters, I need you to cry out as well. When you see another unarmed black man get killed, by police, whether that police officer is brown or black, and we can talk stories, Baltimore, and all of that, but we need you to cry out because black folk need you to throw them a lifeline. We don't need a lecture. We need a lifeline. And we need you to do right, not because it's politically correct, but because it's biblically correct. And man, if one part of the body is hurting, and I'm here to tell you, black folks are hurting, and they need you to just show up you don't have to say anything to fix it. But man, put your arm around that coworker who comes in to work and they're a little awkward. They may be a minority, in minority. Help them out. Go to them. Take a risk and listen to them open up about how they feel. We need the body of Christ to show up this way. Because if we're going to see change, it's going to take both of us. But black people can't be angry. And why folks can't deflect and deny. We've got to come together under the banner of Jesus Christ. So would you stand with me now as I pray and ask the Lord to help us to do the right thing. To take a risk. To cross the color barrier. To lift up my neighbor, regardless of where he or she may come from. And to do the right thing to show love and justice. Let's pray, Father God, we thank you for Jesus. As we remember him now through this holy communion, we remember a savior who not only spoke love, but he demonstrated love and he came down and he sacrificed himself so that we could be set free. This is the gospel. It's the good news that saves us, but it's also the good news that challenges us every day. Because, Lord, you tell each and every one of us that if we try to hold on to our lives, we're going to lose it. But if we can lose our lives for your sake, that's when we find it. Thank you for the great work you're doing at this church. Thank you for their international reach. Thank you, Lord, for their compassion for their neighbors. But, Lord, I know that they want more. They want more diversity. They want more. Lord, would you give them the desires of their heart? And may they never ever, and I believe they never will, miss what this is all about. And that is the person and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our King Triumphant. We remember him now. And we pray that you would strengthen us through this communion as we remember your body and your blood. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, amen. Amen.